welcome to the Global Luxury Real Estate Mastermind with me, your host, Michael Valdez. Today, I am really thrilled to have one of my very good friends on the podcast today. He is somebody who you're going to enjoy hearing from. So spiritual, such an amazing human being, a great, great business professional, and an amazing sort of singer. So we have with us today, Shen Schultz. Shen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Michael. I'm honored to be with you today. Thanks for having me on the show. It absolutely is my pleasure. Shen, you're ranked, you know, one of the top agents in the entire Sotheby's International Realty Network. You grew up and you sell Malibu and, and its surrounding areas. And I'm going to get right into that uh, story but right with you. But I want to know a little bit about the Malibu market first. It is, it's a brand. And, you know, my listeners are global listeners and they start looking at investment in the U.S. and they start looking at places that they've heard about and know. And Malibu is certainly one of those places. Tell me a little bit about the market, how it's doing, and where uh, you're looking at international buyers, et cetera. Oh, thanks, Michael. Okay, so the Malibu market is incredibly strong. It has been for years. It's, in Larry Ellison's words, the least expensive Riviera in the world, meaning that it's the closest to a large city, Los Angeles, California, and within only 30 minutes drive up the beautiful coast highway with the gorgeous sunset views along the ocean. And you can get some of the um, largest parcels of land for the least amount of money in most Rivieras of the world. It's fee simple property and the closest you can get to LA and be right on the beach without a boardwalk running in front of you. Plus we have some vistas and mountain ranges. We have Pepperdine University. Great restaurants like Nobu along the coast, Carbon Beach, and some of the largest sales in the country. The last three years, we've had three sales over $100 million. Um, the general market took a hit in 2018 in the Woolsey Fire. We had uh, almost 20% of the houses burn on the wow. west end of Malibu, sadly. And um, it was a bit scary for a lot of the residents who lost their homes, including us and uh, over 700 homes burned in Malibu. And uh, it was a real challenge, but um, we had a large fire in 1992 on the east end, closer to the Santa Monica side. And within three years, the entire area was rebuilt and um, the high tide raised all ships with brand new houses that have been selling for higher prices than ever before. And that's our prediction in the next couple of years we have um, about 75 building permits issued, so over 10% of the homes are being rebuilt brand new, which will simply raise the prices. So um, that being said, the Malibu market took about a three-month hit after the fire in 2018, begin 2019. But uh, through it all, I had one of my best years ever last year selling Malibu beachfront properties and houses in the hills. So it, for me... Um, one of the lessons, Michael, I learned from a long time ago, it's, uh, it's really important just to put the blinders on and focus on the finish line. So many people 
are looking down at the grass midfield, but we have to remember where the end zone is and to hyper-focus with more intensity. And uh, one of the great take-home lessons I learned from a spiritual teacher, um, don't focus on worry. That's just what we don't want. Focus on what we want to accomplish. And if we're concerned, apply extra effort. So that's what we did. So you actually gave me so much there in that answer. And I want to, first of all, um, you know, um, I want to talk about the fires in this, uh, in this conversation. And um, it was something where it's amazing. 700 homes burned. You said 20% of the homes burned, including yours. It's, yes. it, I, you know, I know I reached out to you during that time and it was something that is, I, I mean, still it's, it's astonishing to me that it was so the gravity of it all. I think that those that were not in California really could not appreciate what everyone was living and going through at that moment. Um, you know, this was, this was going to be a later question, but I think that was, since we started with it, I'd love to just, get a little bit of um, understanding from you. Um, what was that like? I mean, it's just like, uh, for me, it's just quite unbelievable. Oh, thank you. Well, first of all, it was truly devastating. And I didn't realize what PTSD was until going through that experience. Mm. Uh, we've all heard about it with the military and it's, it's really a tragic kind of experience when people have PTSD and there shouldn't even be a D at the end. It's, it's, it's not a dysfunction. It just happens. But when a person experiences real tragedy of any kind, what happens is the subconscious takes over as a coping mechanism. So for the first couple of months before I was even um, conscious, each morning, 4.35 in the morning, my brain would do circles with what if I was there at the house to, you know, save something or everything's burned. And it's, it's difficult to have a whole family legacy for both my wife and myself, family photos, history, everything. And we weren't even in town and my, my twin sons were home and my wife and I were at our house in Hawaii when the fire happened. And uh, we radioed in to the boys and we told them, you know, grab what they could in terms of photos and computers and whatever they could load in their cars and basically evacuate. And then we lost contact. The phone went dead and we couldn't reach them and all the power was out. And there was no water in the water systems and the firefighters were overwhelmed. And, and uh, what happens is the power goes down, <clears throat> the power poles um, go down and the power goes out and then the water pumps don't function because there's no backup generators and water systems in California. Funnily enough, you'd think there would be, but there hasn't ever been. So the water runs out in the pipes and then the firefighters don't have any water in the hydrants. And my best buddy from fifth grade was a fire captain and he rocked up with a fire truck and couldn't put the house out because there was no water. So um, anyway, that's the kind of story that happened. And then the, the first few days were just kind of shocking and uh you know, fortunately we had insurance and you know we just sort of uh ex experienced homelessness for the next couple of months because the fire actually burned 1600 homes from the valley over to oh valley. my gosh and wow. there weren't six, there weren't 1600 rentals on a good day <clears throat> so we uh stayed with a friend and um, a couple things happened first of all 
uh, you personally reached out and my Sotheby's family wrapped their arms around me. And um, it's an incredible experience when you suffer tragedy and just somebody there holding your hand or calling you and, and giving you emotional support does an incredible thing to one's spirit. And it, it just makes you feel that you're safe and that you're loved and that people care and they'll do anything for you. And most people don't know what to do for someone, but there were so many lessons I learned in terms of empathy and, and tragedy and, and how to look at the bright side. And, and my friends in Seattle and around the country and the Sotheby's family promised me something good would come of it. And at the time, for months, I thought they were absolutely insane. I had lost faith and um, didn't really understand or see beyond the immediate challenge. But I will tell you what happened was the very where my head goes and I'll, and I'll share some of how my brain works and how I've learned over the time of my life to embrace the tragedy and realize that challenge is simply the doorway for the next best opportunity. And those words fall flat when you're in the middle of it, but it's really, really the truth. And like you with your motivation to create this podcast and share and educate and help people, that's kind of where I'm at more so than ever because of this tragedy. So when I got off the plane back a couple weeks after the fire to come back and sort out all the problems, the very first thing I noticed, Michael, on the, um, on the airplane exiting, the guy across from me had one arm. He was missing an arm. Wow. And, and I thought to myself, oh gosh, you know, my house burned, my stuff burned, but it's not that bad. So then I went home and found, you know, two photographs of my father who died when I was 19. And I thought, gosh, I, you know, those are the two photographs I have left. But I realized, well, there's two of them. It's better than one, it's better than none. So I immediately started shifting my brain into optimism and understanding that uh, I adopted a phrase, no mud, no lotus, which is the mm -hmm. lotus flower never grows unless there's muddy water. And it, it might sound silly or trite, but I was holding on to these messages of optimism with faith that the next best thing would happen. And I had no idea what it, what it was going to be, but... Um, I'll share more in the in the next questions you have, but it was really one of the greatest silver lining events in my life that put so many of my past learnings and spiritual practices together from a very tragic loss. I became a better person. You know, Shen, it was, you know, you, you say about all the lessons that you learned, but, you know, it's astonishing how many lessons you actually taught other people. And this incredible tragedy that no one can can really appreciate unless they've gone through it is the fact that one of the first social media posts that you did was not that you had lost your home, but it was gratitude for everyone around you that was safe, that the firefighters who worked tirelessly to save your possessions it wasn't, you know, it wasn't you sort of saying, oh, my God, I can't believe I just lost my home. You know, why me? It was that that amazing sort of perspective that you had almost immediately 
was like it was just a a sense of gratitude and that to me was was astonishing that to me was you know we've known each other a long time and that was just one of those lessons that you taught me shen where it was my god how does this person see such um a situation happening which anyone looking at it would have been wow this is tragic and while it is you were like well look my boys are safe my my family's in, intact uh i lost possessions and i thank the firefighters who who helped me try to save them where does that come from how do you get into that space thank you so much well i i i first of all have to thank my wife because she had that that exact same headspace and it was really uplifting and we took turns going up or down emotionally but um she's yeah. she's such an, an an inspiration for me in life and i'm so fortunate to have her daily uh someone to talk to and share but um i will i will tell you that for me personally a lot of the ability to deal with that tragedy came from um, my past history and Malcolm Gra Gladwell writes a great book called David and Goliath and yep. um, in his book it's uh, it's it was published about a year and a half ago David and Goliath in his book is the real true account of how David beat Goliath but the theme throughout the book is about 20 different chapters of various incredibly successful people that would not have been successful had they not had a burden a challenge a tragedy in their life and because of it they became warriors and superheroes in our in our modern day and for me um, a bit of a bit of my life history and and as i sh as i share this one of the great sentences that i learned from a friend who um, had overcome adversity said what would your life be like if you didn't attach to your story and that's hmm. a great sentence because for all of us we can get inspiration from our challenges and our life stories, as long as we're not attached to it and, and use them as tools to uplift or stay present in the future. And uh, like you, I've gotten, I've arrived at the place in my life where it's so much more about humanity and collaboration and love and empathy, compassion than it is about my own personal gain. And most people in business that I admire put service first and and then the money will follow if we do our job well but part of where i gained some of my mental health um if i can even say that if there's such a thing but my stability or ability to handle that challenge in a positive way was that my parents were divorced when i was very young and my parents were um hippies in the 60s and um my dad became a buddhist monk when i was uh, about three, four years old, he joined a Buddhist monastery in Los Angeles. And I had the great opportunity to live with him at a young age from about five to 11 years old. So I watched this spiritual environment as a kid. And uh, then I moved to Malibu with my mom, um, learned to surf, played football, kinds of sports, had a great life as a kid out here. But um, started my own business at a young age and then sort of had an empty feeling and went, was fortunate my dad was still alive. I went back to my dad, that first sort of teenage angst. I was about 18 
heading into college, had my own business, everything seemed to be good on the outside, but I had a kind of sad inner feeling I couldn't put my finger on. So I expressed this to my dad and he said, well, that's absolutely great. You're acknowledging your own personal suffering. Maybe uh, uh, you can go to the Zen temple and study where I studied. And he called his teacher and uh, he, they accepted me. So I started my own Buddhist training at uh, about 18 years old and stayed there till uh, I didn't live there, but I'd go every weekend I could for about eight, nine years. So at the monastery, it was very difficult training. You'd meditate eight hours a day and uh, no talking. It would be anywhere from three days to two weeks um, training with these Buddhist masters from Japan. And uh, my dad's best friend had become the uh, the head teacher there. So I was, I was close to him and it was a teacher-student relationship for many years. But one of the things that I realized through this hard physical and mental effort to sit in meditation eight hours a day was that it became impossible to do that and actually show up and complete the course uh, with a bunch of problems in my head. So I realized that if I'm going to survive some of these sessions, I'm going to have to put my problems down. And as I did that, just showing up, getting in line, being of service, <clears throat> doing my job, I realized all of a sudden the epiphany was I didn't need all that stuff. I didn't need all the, those problems in my head, uh, the attachment to the past, the worry of the future. And, and that was sort of the great life lesson that I had as, at a young age. Just be of service. And somehow when we're of service, the universe shows up and takes care of us emotionally, financially, in ways that we never thought possible if we're just in it for ourselves. You know, it's it's amazing to me when I, um, it, it's like these layers of Shen Schultz that always get revealed <laughs> to me. And I knew the story about your, your dad being um, a Buddhist monk. And first of all, who can say that? My dad was a Buddhist monk. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, then, um, but then you actually doing your own path at 18, so you start sort of looking at the idea of balance in life and balance in the universe, and you've really taken that to an extreme. You went from, you know, spending your formative years with your dad in, in, in a monastery, if you will, in a Buddhist monk, and then going and living with your mom in your preteen to teen years, where you're in Malibu surfing, playing football, and then going back to your dad when you're turning 18. I mean, it's just amazing to to know how well-rounded you are because of that and you know it was one of those things that you said earlier what would your life be like if you didn't attach to your life story and if there isn't anything there um, then all you have is really what's at your core and you've proven that so so often time and again to to me and to others and um, I want to go back to something you were mentioning before when you were talking about um, Malcolm Gladwell's book and he was talking about where showcasing 20 people and what they learned from one of their challenges. So I ask you, what's your superhero moment? What was it? What did you learn? What's the greatest lesson you learned from one of your failures, Shen? Oh, thanks for asking, Michael. Um, so my first, I've been selling real estate for 20 
years. Uh, my first 10 years was with Coldwell Banker, and then I came to Sotheby's in 2010, thankfully. It's been the greatest career move I've ever made. It's just such a positive environment with such collaboration across the country. The referral network is amazing. But there's something that happened um, in 2010 that was a life changer. The first 10 years of my business were like what most realtors experience, the roller coaster of the ebb and flow and the incredible um, drama that is, is uh, surrounding ourselves with a, a, a real estate transaction. There's, there's so many moving parts and the experiences of the, uh, the drama and suffering, you know, you're basically, you have a, a life estate in your hands with millions of dollars and people's trust based for three month period or a year period. And there's a lot of pressure and people experience this. And somehow for me, I had to, I had to somehow connect my spiritual life with my material life and I didn't know how to do it. So uh, the 2008 crash was, was absolutely cut me off at the knees. Like a lot of people, half of America was underwater. Uh, the economy was in the tank. And in, in my community of Malibu, the Uber luxury high end market where the average sales price is almost $3 million. People were just sort of waiting for the next lowest price reduction. So there were not a lot of transactions happening. As my good friend said, I don't think it's going to hit the Malibu market, but then we learned what a credit default swap meant and the market really turned and it was tough. And so I was going, falling back on my work ethic. And I knew if I just went to work seven days a week, 10 or 12 hours a day, something would turn. And so in, in terms of failure, it wasn't necessarily my fault, but I had to connect my inner dialogue with my external dialogue. And my Zen teacher used to say that much like a quantum physics perspective, there is no separation between our internal world and our external world. It's almost like the law of attraction or the experience that we have if, if we intend or hyper-focus, like running beyond the finish line. If you focus five feet beyond the finish line, you'll run through the finish line, you won't slow down. Or lifting weight, same type of thing. Anything we put our mind to, we have to have a a mental guide or a coach or somebody that helps us perform better. So I was praying for that to come in 2010 and a good friend of mine had opened a juice bar next door to our Sotheby's office. And we were coaching each other that we were going to get through this market. And he kept telling me, Oh, you're one day you're going to meet the llama. And, and I said, well, who's the llama? Is it the guy I've seen around Malibu and the red saffron robes and, he says, yeah, you're going to meet the llama one day. And I said, well, that would be great. And he goes, and when you do, he's going to give you a blessing. It'll change your life. And I thought, well, that's awesome. And I, but I couldn't, <laughs> I, I'm looking forward to it, right? So every week or two, I'd, I'd see my friend and I'd say, well, where's the llama? When's he coming? <laughs> Hoping for the market to turn up, working 10 hours a day. And um, he says, you'll see him one day. So nine months later, I walked out of my office and literally run into my friend and the llama standing next to him and he goes oh shen meet ken llama from tibet and i said wow nice to meet you and he says oh ken llama can you give shen a blessing so he reaches up and grabs me by my ear like a school teacher pulls my forehead and then touches our foreheads together and he says he holds on to my 
Hi, Aaron. He looks me in the eye and he says, don't worry. That's just focusing on what you don't want. Go forward in the world with an open heart, with love and compassion and service to others. And the next 30 seconds was a blur. It was everything you'd think a spiritual teacher of any kind would say, just encouragement. But I ruminated on the words like the koans, the Japanese riddles I used to study as a 20-year-old in the monastery. For three days, I ruminated on it. I thought there's got to be more to the message than just the words. And all of a sudden, it hit me, and I realized what it was I was missing in getting off the roller coaster and connecting my spiritual condition to the material world. And it was simple, the golden rule. Put others first, be of service. And I thought, well, that's easy to say, but what does it look like for a realtor? And how does the uniform of a realtor or the badge of a realtor apply to that message? And I thought, well, I'll just create an avatar. If I'm not, not strong enough to do it myself every day, at least my avatar will be able to. So I created an avatar of a Sherpa. And the Sherpa helps people up and down the mountain. They're the calm in the storm. They have the experience and it's all about their clients. So if somebody makes it across the river and buys a house without me, I'm happy for them. They made it. But I have faith that as a Sherpa, as a person of service to our community, as service to the real estate world, I have 10 other people ready to jump in my boat. And the very next day that I adopted this internal dialogue, I get a call from Seattle with a three and a half million dollar referral. A $10 million walk-in comes the next week. All of a sudden, business ticked up. I've been selling over $50 million a year since then. And it's, it's been an incredible experience. And it's all because of the tragedy. And I realized that yeah. behind every challenge, every moment of, of adversity is only the doorway to the next best thing. You know, it's, um, it's amazing to, to just always hear you speak because you're so inspirational. And it's the idea of creating, even, even that vision of creating that avatar, which is what you needed to sort of do. But I think that one of the other things that you had said was always make your goal five feet beyond the finish line to guarantee you'll just breeze through it. It's, yeah. um, it's a beautiful imagery. It's, a, it's, it's, it's actually, um, you know, that can change so many people in just a simple message like that. And it's so true. You know, we actually set our, our goals, um, but it's, uh, it's the fact that if we set them just a little bit higher, the original goals make it so much easier to achieve. And, you know, it was, um, I, it was so funny because I've sat on a few, um, uh, well, on a lot of panels, but last year there was somebody that had asked me a question on a panel and it was um, just on global luxury and global real estate. And I'm sitting on this panel with, you know, the president of Knight Frank, the president of Douglas Elliman, and, you know, there's about five of us on there and I was the second to last person to answer the question. And the question was, what do you do to motivate your agents? And so um, my answer was, you know, I think the agent needs to understand what their why was and remember that. And it was the most successful agents that I've ever known are those that serve with humility to their client base. And unless we find that humility of service back into our own world, there's no way that that agent will be successful and nothing I can say can motivate them.
And so it was, uh, it was so interesting because then the person that was behind me sort of said, can I actually go before you next time? <laughs> it was one of these things. But it's exactly what you're saying. And it's something that we know, Shen, you know, when we see our colleagues, um, when we see who the top agents are in the industry, no matter where you are, whether you're in Malibu or Moscow or Mumbai, it's the fact that that person is coming from a position of service to their clients. And those are the most successful people that are in our industry. And it's something that I just strongly believe, and you're the epitome of that in really showing that that is how you succeed. It doesn't matter where you are. It's just that sense of service. Oh, thank you, Michael. I think the same of you, my friend. <laughs> well, this is just going to be a love fest then. <laughs> I know. No, I, you're, you're, you're one of, one of my uh, business idols. And when we get together and talk like this, it, it, it seems like we could just, you know, share stories for us. And, and, and we usually do. Yeah, <laughs> we yeah. usually do, but we won't do it on this podcast just for the sake of everyone else listening. We're going to shoot that down. Um, but I want to go back to that sense of um, of harmony that I was talking about earlier, and that sense of balance that's happened in your life when you know you starting your your younger years with your dad, and then your formative years with your mom, and then going back to finding your spirituality. You have this beautiful balance, and so you, in a greater way, you you've mentioned um, your family on this uh, on this interview thus far, whom I know very well, and such a beautiful family that you have. You also just you know you live life. You're an avid surfer. You've got your own band which I think is amazing. You've got to want to hear about your band. And, you know, you're still one of the top agents nationally. And you, how, does, how does that balance work in your life? And, and do tell me about the band also. Um, okay. But how does that all work? How does that balance work for you? Well, I, I have a couple of things. And, and post-fire, post I, I did a lot of study this last year on uh, mental health and what creates happiness and the chemicals in the brain that occur when a guy like Tony Robbins teaches a course that says, get ourselves into state. If you can, if you can mentally uh, picture a, a positive uh, vision and get your body and your breathing into a mental state, typically starts with gratitude. Um, it's almost impossible to have fear and anxiety at the same time of gratitude. It's, it's literally two opposite muscles opposing each other. And so one of the things that I, um, look back on is you know as as grateful as i am to both of my parents we grew up poor i did not have money as a kid and i started at a very young age working in my own businesses and having the grit to be an entrepreneur in small service businesses in my local community and i've kept that through so even though um i have a a, a good degree of success in the business i still have a precursor pattern of um, anxiety, which I think is a very healthy and helpful thing to maintain grit, to work harder and continue to raise the bar. So I, I did a lot of research on mental health and what creates happiness in the last year. And there's a couple of really good books. One of them is called Atomic Habits by James Clear. 
And in the book, he talks about how habits are, are formed in, re, in regards to goals. Goals can be accomplished, but then we can, we can lose 50 pounds and then, you know, gain weight again because we had a goal and we accomplished it. But actually what happens in habits in regards to human evolution and how the brain works, when we start to think of things like gratitude and happiness and love and empathy and kindness, certain chemicals are created in the brain melatonin, oxytocin, these chemicals produce an event that we perceive to be a positive experience. And as that positive experience happens and we have other humans around us or even pets and animals, or we get universal feedback. Somehow there's a quantum relationship between how we're experiencing the world and how the world shows up for us. If we, and we are limited by the perception of the five senses. And so there's that sixth or seventh sense that we all feel in terms of faith of some kind that there is a love in the universe and the universe wants us to exceed and, and propel and help others. And so as we become of service, like you're doing today with your business and the way you inspire other people, it gives you good feelings and those good feelings cause you to do it again and cause others to feel good around you. And then people actually want to do business with you. And so there's really no separation between self and other and the universe. And, and these things are kind of proven with, with quantum physics. And one of the great quotes the Dalai Lama gave in, in a preface to one of his books, The Universe in a Nutshell, um, he gave a speech in front of quantum physicists in Geneva. And he says, well, why am I here as a spiritual teacher in front of all these amazing scientists? He said, for 2000 years, we've studied the internal world and I would give up all my beliefs if any of you scientists could prove something that's more real. I only ask that you do the same. And so, you know, faith and vision and, and, and positivity and, and what I find that really helps me is people like yourself and, and you know, leaders in our community and visionaries, if there's just three words each day that we can hold on to that get us through a better experience, those are worth it. So for me, um, my Instagram is full of like Tony Robbins and The Rock and positive things. So when I go to the gym, I think of The Rock. Like if I'm feeling weak and I can't get through the set, I'm like, what would The Rock do? Or, you know, <laughs> and it, you know what I mean? So, you know, inspiration yeah. is, is all around us. We just got to find it. You know, and, and I totally agree with that. And I, and I really am someone who is a student of habits. And, you know, um, you know I live in, in, in New York City and our corporate headquarters are in New Jersey. And my commute is an hour and a half each way on a daily basis. And so I am somebody who always said that success is just a roadmap, right? And so mm -hmm. you just need to figure it out. It's a math equation. And so I wake up at 4.15 every morning during, when I, during the week and I'm at the gym at five because otherwise I wouldn't have time to do so. And it's something where those habits are just becomes part of, your, uh, part of your life. And then what I do on the train on the way to work is I have a gratitude book and I write 10 things that I'm grateful for every morning before I even jump into my emails and, and phone calls. And it's something where it's, it changes your uh, perception. 
and it changes your rhythm and it goes back to what you're saying you really the, their their opposite um, sort of um, plateaus and you can't sort of have fear and anxiety in a space of gratitude um, it just doesn't fit it's unusual for that to happen um, but it's something that you are absolutely right and it's something that I still am learning and um, and I'm doing and it's part of that thing of habits it's um, habit forming is how you get to that formula of success amen amen <laughs> um, so tell me mr. Schultz what is the legacy that you'd like to leave thanks for asking um, for me it, the most important space that I'm at and because of the success and the challenges and my life history of looking back uh, in appreciation for all of it, I'm at a place that I want to be able to inspire and help other people. My, my motivation is to remind others and myself in the process that if it weren't for certain legacies that I've inherited and appreciation for, for the leaders and the coaches and the teachers and my family and my friends like you that have given me inspiration, I wouldn't have the happiness or success that I do. And my goal is to put this down in a book that if I can help one person with with my life lessons, the mantra would be uh, to help and serve others in a bigger way. And unless we do things like you're doing now with this podcast, or we put th something down in writing that is transpired to help and save others, then, then really we're not doing our job. And um, mm -hmm. once we get through the battlefield of our youth and um, we, we reach a certain plateau of success, my, my uh, recent quote that I like from Jim, Jim Carrey, he said, I really wish everybody could make a million dollars and buy anything they want because then they'd realize that's not the answer. And <laughs> it's, it, it's true. It's like, right. what, what, what more is, is life? It's about, it's about empathy and love and care and, and, and humanity. And uh, there's so much to do each day to help and serve others. And, and we all know what, what it means when somebody has inspired us. And if we could pay that forward, that's, that's my goal. That's my legacy. That's what I want to do. Well, you already inspire. You inspire me every time I speak with you. And you need to write that book because just in this conversation, I've taken away a lot of things. Challenge is the doorway to the next opportunity. Yeah. Put that finish line five feet beyond you, the one you thought you wanted. And always my favorite, no mud, no lotus. <laughs> Shen, it's always amazing to have a conversation with you. You know, I don't see you as much as I'd like to or on opposite ends of the nation, but I always think of you as well, such a dear friend. You are truly my Zen master. You make me feel so much more spiritual every time I talk to you, and I really want to Thank you for your candor and conversation today with me and with the listeners. And I think it's been a very inspirational conversation. Thank you so much. You inspired me as well. Really appreciate <laughs> being on your show.
Thank you, my friend. And thank you to all of you. This has been the Global Luxury Real Estate Mastermind with me, your host. <laughs>